Dear, let me ask you please to pray with me, Father. In heaven, I pray that you would be with us now. Open up our minds well and our hearts most especially. Overcome any resistance we have to hearing truth. God, I confess for myself and on behalf of us all. We know our sin. We know our inclination to go our own way. And so I pray that uh, on this morning you would overcome all of that resistance, enable us to listen, to hear you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible or something to look something up in, uh, 1 Kings, please. 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to read just a couple of verses, verses 19 through through 21. Three verses, I guess. 1 Kings in chapter 19. Remember, we're in the midst of these narratives about the prophet Elijah. So the he in verse 19 refers to him, to the prophet Elijah. Hear the word of God. So he, that is Elijah, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and and gave it to the people and they ate. And uh, then he arose and went after Elijah Elijah, and assisted him. Now the question, I suppose, is what's in this really for us? Uh, Why why should we take up these, these few verses about Elijah anointing Elisha, if you will, to be the next prophet. Why should, we, why should we take these up? And you say, well, it's in the Bible. We should take it up, and that's true. But, but not every passage uh, requires that we preach on it. Um, there are some passages, especially in these narrative pieces, that um, uh, really are for transition, to sort of help us you know, get the whole narrative, get the whole c- context, get the whole story, if you will, what's really going on here. And so, so sometimes uh, it's not necessary for us to pause and to linger over, over, these, over these things. But there's something here that I think requires a bit of time for us. Uh, it does serve as kind of a transitional piece. You remember the whole, the whole situation here. Remember Elijah uh, goes before King Ahab, who's the king. There's idolatry happening. Queen Jezebel is the one who's brought this prophet Baal into the worship of Israel, and, and, and the people are no longer depending upon God alone, but on God and this false God as well. And, uh, uh, and, and so in the midst of, of that situation, Elijah comes and he tells King Ahab that it's not going to rain. You remember why he tells him it's not going to rain? Because there's a covenant that God has made with these people, and the covenant is that they have no other gods except God alone. And they've now depended upon this God, Baal. It seems odd to us to have a God that we would name like that, but it's only because we don't recognize the names of our own gods, do we? Whether that's our possessions, 
or whether it's our prestige or status in the community or whether it's, um, whether it's the pleasures that we pursue or whether it's control that we need, any of those things, you see. Uh, we don't perhaps give them little pet names like Baal, but they exist, don't they? Remember, we've said that whatever takes the place of God, that is whatever we have in our own lives that defines us or directs us, that which we find our delight in, that is God to us, you see. And we have to be careful in the midst of that that we don't have these gods other than God, and yet it's our inclination to trust in other ones, other things than God himself. Well, but that's what was happening during the days of Elijah. He brings this curse, this it's not going to rain upon them uh, because that was part of this covenant. God says, you're my people. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you trust me, I'll bless you. If you depend upon me, I'll bless you. If you don't, there'll be a curse that comes in the midst of this covenant, that curse being a lack of rain, which means he'll take away their prosperity. They won't have any food. They'll die. So Elijah brings this pronouncement. It doesn't rain for three and a half years. And then you remember, there was this great confrontation, great confrontation of, a, of, of the God, the true and living God against, if you will, the gods of Baal, these Baal gods. And so, so the prophets of Baal have an opportunity, as Elijah gives it to him, to, to lay out this sacrifice of wood. And, and he says, if your God can catch that on fire, then Baal is God. And he sets up another sacrifice, if you will, uh, with, with fire and, and a bull upon it as well. And, and he douses it with water. And he says, look. And God, the true and living God, poof, catches all of that, makes the sacrifice. The people said, the Lord is, is God. He's the one, you see. Now, Elijah thinks then that everything is going to be restored now in Israel, but it's not. King Ahab doesn't repent. Jezebel doesn't repent. In fact, there's a contract now out on Elijah's life. And so Elijah gets very discouraged, depressed, and he runs. And in his running, he says to God, take my life. This is enough. He gets some rest. An angel comes, bakes him this sort of miraculous cake that keeps him going for 40 days and 40 nights. And then God takes him back to Mount Sinai. Not that Elijah had ever been there before, but Moses had been there. And it was at Mount Sinai that this covenant was first made. And so it's renewed, you see. It's renewed. And God says to Elijah, essentially, this is my deal, not yours. I'll fulfill it. You think you're alone. You think you're the only one. You, you, you think it all depends upon you, but it doesn't. I've got 7,000 who love me, and none of them have bowed their knee to Baal or kissed him. You don't know them, but there's 7,000 of them, and just because you don't know them doesn't mean they don't exist, doesn't mean I'm not at work. So all I want you to do, Elijah, is continue on with this. I've got work that continues to be done, so I've, I need you to anoint two kings and one prophet. And so now what we find is Elijah carrying that out. He, he, he comes first to anoint this prophet Elisha. And he does it in a kind of a funny way. He throws his, his cloak or his robe, really, over him. He sees him. Here's Elisha. He's, you know, farming. It's his family business. And, and so he throws his, his, his coat, his robe, his cloak over him. Now, when I was a kid and read the King James Version of the Bible, that word was mantle, which I found very odd. 
because they only, only knew two mantles. One played center field for the Yankees. And the other was over the fireplace. And I thought, duck? <laughs> but really, the, the cloak, this robe, was a covering that prophets wore. It was kind of like their uniform. And so, so everyone would know him by this mantle that he wore, by this cloak. And so he took it and he covered Elisha with it. And so Elisha would know, oh, I get it. This is the call of God upon my life to be the next prophet. So I suppose just like a mantle covers the fireplace and Mickey covered center field, this cloak, right, covered Elisha. And then he responds, and he responds in a way that we, we wonder about. He says, first, I got to go back and kiss my mom and dad, in a sense. And, and then he, he, he takes all that, uh, his oxen and the, and the yokes and all that, and, and basically uh, kills the oxen, uh, boils them, takes the yokes, probably starts the fire with that. It's probably what that means. And then they have a party. And, and so we wonder about all that. The reason I want to linger here is because I think what we have in Elisha, among other things, is an example of a non-idolater. So far, we've pretty much come in contact with idolaters in Israel, those who, who, who might worship God, but also worship other gods as well, and, and, and find their security, their real life, you see, in, in these other gods. But here, what we have, I think, in Elisha, is one who's a non-idolater. And I think if we look at his life, we'll find a great deal about how it is what it means, really, for us not to be idolaters, not to follow other gods. Now, at first, uh, his response, at least for me, gives me pause. Because I, I, I see in it something that Jesus appears to have condemned. Notice how Elisha uh, says to Elijah, he says in the middle of verse 20, after he's being called to be the prophet, he says, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Do you remember? There was a time in the life of Jesus when he was speaking to people about how they were to embrace him, follow him, really. And this is in Luke in chapter 9 and verse 57. Jesus was with his disciples. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And it sounds to us like Elisha, Elisha is doing just that. That he's saying, I, I, I gotta go back and kiss my mom and dad, and then I'll follow you. But really, then, when you see what Elisha did, is he burned the oxen and all of that. And when he burned the oxen, do you know what he was doing? He was burning his inheritance. He was from a wealthy family, no doubt. A family that could afford 12 oxen. 
A family that after a three and a half year drought still had oxen alive. You wonder how many they lost. Still had a field to plow. And so after it had rained and the field was soft, they went out to plow it. And so Elisha then, working for his father, burns his inheritance. He says, I'm not coming back. So when he said, I want to go kiss my mom and dad, he meant it. He said, this is really goodbye. I know what it means to be a prophet. I've heard about Elijah. They want to kill him. Now he's saying, come and join me. (laughs) I know what that means for me. Uh, I'm going to serve Elijah, he would apprentice for him. This was no glamorous position, especially in the beginning. In fact, in 2 Kings in chapter 3, Elisha is known as the one who pours water over the hands of Elijah, which means essentially he was functioning as Elijah's valet. He was washing his hands. That's what he did. Glamorous job of being an apprentice to the great prophet Elijah. He knew all of that, but most deeply he knew this. That when he would go, he would leave it all behind. So when Jesus was saying what he was saying, he he was talking in the context of people who were reluctant to follow him. They were just using excuses, and Jesus knew that. But Elijah knew when Elisha said, let me go kiss my mom and dad, he knew what he meant. Oh, yes, you'll come back. So... It's rather cryptic here. It's hard to translate the expression of Elijah, but he says, basically, you can go, but don't forget what's happened here. Don't forget that you have the mantle. Don't forget you're the next prophet. Don't forget you're being called by God to do this. So go kiss them goodbye, but don't forget the call of God in your life. And so he came back, and he then gave up his his inheritance. There's a scary story in the New Testament takes place. There's a lot of scary ones, really. Uh, But in all the synoptic gospels, as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this incident that took place between Jesus and this young man we call the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Let me read. I I probably don't need to read this, but I will. But I, I probably don't need to read it because you know that story. Even, even if you're not a real churchgoer, you know this one. And I think we know this one because it scares us a bit. We, we wonder what it really means. I have to tell you that every time I take up this incident in the life of Jesus, I have to rethink it from beginning to end because it so startles me. Verse 18, Luke 18. And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come the age to come eternal life now what makes this story this incident so scary is that we think that Jesus is calling us to sell everything that we have and I don't believe that he's actually calling us literally to do that necessarily and everybody goes Because I believe the demand is way greater than that. You see, that would be easy. (laughs) That wasn't easy for this man. Why? Because his life was in his possessions. You see, that's the very thing of it. His life was in his possessions. And there's something about possessions that grip us all, isn't there? As I mentioned during the offering time, you know, uh, uh, wealth uh, is, 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 is really an easy idol. And it's an easy idol because it facilitates deeper idols. See, having money in and of itself or wealth in and of itself is not that big a deal. But what it does is facilitate all the others that we have, like power and control, right? Like the ability to please ourselves. Uh, uh, like um, the ability to, to, to be seen as, as important in the eyes of others, right? All of those. Wealth facilitates all that. And so it, it, it really serves these deeper idols in us. We think that if we have wealth, then we have life. It's just an easy slide. Because these things of security and control and pleasure and happiness and all those are deep within us. Things that we really desire, not in and of themselves necessarily all the way bad, but, but, but still in us, you see. Because God does offer us security, doesn't he? And he does give us these things. But, but, but we look to something other than God to provide that. Wealth is an easy thing. Possessions, easy thing for this man. It was very easy for him to, 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 to really grab a hold of this. And that would be his life, if you will. So what Jesus was really asking him to do was to play the game of this. What would life be like if I lost? X, Y, Z. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever said, what would my life be like if I lost all my money? What would life be like if I lost my job and didn't have prospects for it? What would life be like if I lost my health? What would life be like if I lost my status in the community or in the church? What would life be like if I lost my spouse? What would life be like if I lost a child? What would life be like if I lost my ability to pursue various things which I I deeply love? A hobby, perhaps. A recreational thing. Whatever that would be. Whatever that would be. What, What if I lost? What if I lost that? Would I have life? 
Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if ever I get asked in the Vogler's to play a game, I'm not coming. (laughs) But think about that. So here was this man before Jesus, and Jesus was saying to him, I want you to think about your life without all your stuff. And he went away sad. Why? Because his life was in his stuff. That was life to him. Take that away. I don't really have life. You see, the cue to all of this is when he comes to Jesus, he says, what must I do to have life? What, what can I do? He thought, I can do something here. What I can do is accumulate things, and I've accumulated things, therefore I have life. And, and, and so much so that that when Jesus made this statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody said, well, then who can be saved? Why did they say that? They said that because in their mind, wealth was God's blessing for being righteous. And they thought if this wealthy man, who claimed to have obeyed all the commandments, and Jesus didn't refute that, if this one couldn't be saved, then, then who could? And they knew what Jesus was saying. They knew it was impossible for this rich man to do anything to inherit eternal life. Now you notice that the solution to a rich person desiring to inherit the kingdom of God wasn't to become poor. It was to trust God because he said that which is impossible for men is possible with God. It's a a God thing. See, it's impossible for a poor person to do anything to inherit the kingdom of God also. That just wasn't the context here. He wasn't talking to a poor person. He was talking to a rich person. So he said, listen, I want you to imagine this. Why? So we can identify what you believe life is, what you think eternal life really is. You think eternal life is bound up in your doing, bound up in yourself, bound up in your stuff. And if you lost all of that, you wouldn't have life. But I'm telling you, listen, that isn't it. You give all of this and you come with me, you'll see life. You see, that's what it means to follow after Christ. Elisha knew that. All the while, he was living with his parents and loved them as well he should. And he was living the life, even though there had been a drought and a great famine, as much as anybody with all these oxen, with all this land and all of that, and and the wherewithal that his family had, he was living in a sense of wealth. He was living in the midst of all of that. But you see, none of that owned him. None of that gripped him. None of that was his life. And how do we know that? Because when God came to him and said, come and follow, he did. He said, all right, this isn't life. God is my life. That's what it really means to follow after him. Paul would say it like this. We read some of this this morning in our responsive reading in Philippians in chapter 3. Paul lays out how he understands life. Remember from verse 2, Philippians 3 verse 2. Puts it like this. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, that is religious acts 
For we, are, for, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness, under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, listen, I was once an idolater. I thought my life, my righteousness, my life was comprised of my heritage, my education, my status. I thought that was it. Because I thought that um, being uh, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, which is exactly the day you're supposed to be, my parents did it just right, of the people of Israel, God's covenant people, the tribe of Benjamin, the, 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 the faithful tribe of all the tribes, Benjamin and Judah, the, the tribe out of which King David comes, this Judah, a Hebrew of Hebrews, culturally, religiously, language-wise. I'm a Hebrew as to the law of Pharisee, the, the most stringent ones of all is the zeal, a persecutor of the church. Uh, I, I did everything uh, to the nth degree uh, uh, as to righteousness under the law that is the Pharisaical law. I was blameless. No one could say anything about me. I was, I was on top of everything. I was, I was the, the prototype of, of, of really being one with life, this righteousness. And yet, I realized that was all wrong. That was all my doing. That was all me. I counted on those things for life. And I was utterly wrong. And he says, so now I've learned to recount, to reconsider, to understand differently. So he puts it like this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See? Whatever I once thought gain, I now realize didn't help me. It all wasn't life really at all. Now, when he said I counted or I considered, what he means is this. I thought of these things as. I no longer thought of these things as life to me. Some things might be good things. His heritage wasn't a bad thing, that he was culturally a Hebrew. Not a bad thing at all, but, but if you trust in it, if you say that's life, if I don't have this, I don't have life, that's wrong, you see. Says so I had to reconsider every, rethink everything. So I counted it, I saw it differently. For instance, if you're in the grocery store and someone smiles at you, you may count that as hello. Right? Somebody smiles at you, you what do you do? You always smile back. Well, you say hello. I say hello to all kinds of people in the grocery store because I think they probably have come to church. <laughs> so, I, so if I ever, you know, I might get arrested someday for being overly friendly in the grocery store. But, but when people smile, I say hello. I think they know me. You know, if not, we should know each other. 
Uh, it may be that if uh, you're a woman and you get flowers from your husband, you count that as a thank you or as a sign of affection or maybe as an apology. Uh, but but you, you, you look at those flowers and you consider them something, don't you? You, see? you? you value them in a particular way. When I'm on a diet, for instance, I count Snickers bars as the enemy, right? They're attacking me all the time. So Paul says, I have to rethink. I have to look at these things differently now because I understand the surpassing value of Christ. He's my life. So the everything here that I count as loss, the everything is that which keeps me from life, that which keeps me from knowing Christ. And so I see all these things that keep me from knowing him, and I say, no, those are loss. I no longer cling to them for life. I see all those things that, that enable me to know Christ. Yes, that's my life. And then he gives another comparison. He says, I, I see all these things that, that, that don't help me really cling to life as rubbish, as garbage, you see. And so he's making a comparison. He's saying one compared to the other. Knowing Christ, that's valuable. Everything else in comparison is garbage, really. And so you see, our whole accounting system changes. We view things differently, how we value things, because we know where life really comes from. It comes from knowing Christ. That's what's valuable. Cling, hold on to, really nothing, nothing else. Be willing to let it go for the sake of Christ. This prayer we prayed this morning the very end, John Wesley Covenant Prayer, as he titled it, is one that I have on my, my prayer book, my list of things to pray. And I pray it with fear and trembling most of the time. But you see, that's it. This is the prayer of one who's a non-idolater. He's saying, God, have me, whatever I'll give up this, I'll give up that, because those aren't really life to me. And if you take them, I'll live, because you're my, you're my life. I'm, I'm no longer my own, but yours. I've been bought with a price. Put to me what you will. Call me in whatever direction you please. Rank me with whom you will, those who are high and those who are low. Put me to doing, I'll do it. Put me to suffering, I'll suffer. Let me be employed for you, I'll, I'll do it. Or laid aside for you, I won't. Exalted for you, brought low for you. Let me be full or empty or have everything or nothing or, or I just freely yield all things to you, to your pleasure and disposal. You're mine, I'm yours. So be it. That means amen, by the way. So be it. Think about it. That's what it means to be a non-idolater. Elisha's the picture of that. He was in the midst of it all the time, but he never clung to it. And so when the call of God came, and we're not being called to, to leave our stuff necessarily or any of that, but, but in the midst of life, just, just how we understand life, it isn't to cling to those, to those things. Notice, too, how Jesus puts it, for instance, in Matthew, in chapter 10. Verse 34, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come to bring, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, in another context, of course, he can speak of bringing peace. Verse 35, 
But I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He says, listen, following me means you follow me. Verse 37, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's saying, listen, I'm to be the love of your life. You're to look to me. And in Luke, in chapter 14, Jesus says the same thing, but like this. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, you know, Jesus would not have made a very good politician. Because every time we get in the scripture, great crowds followed him. He thinned out the ranks with what he was about to say. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't telling us to hate our parents or our children or our spouses. In fact, we're commanded quite the opposite throughout the scripture. So what's he trying to say? Well, at least this. In comparison to your love for me, your love for them would seem like hate. Or this, that if ever you're being led away from me by any of these, don't go. Don't be led by them away from me. I'm your life, you see. I'm your life. In fact, he defines everything in this. Why do we love our mother and our fathers? Because we think it's a good idea? Well, it might be, and we might think that. But the reason that we love them is because we're commanded to love them. Why do we love our children? Because we think that shows us to be good parents? Well, it might. But we love them because he defined life that way. And so he says, follow after me in everything, you see. That's why we do what we do. You don't do what you do because it's a good idea to you or because it makes you look good or feel good or you think you should. No, no, no. All that we do, we do because he lays out for us to do. And he says, love them. So we do. But his point here is being dramatic, yes. But he's saying, listen, if you want to follow after me, you've got to hate everything else and come and follow me. And he puts it like this even more dramatically. Who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Crosses mean death. You don't want to put to death your own sinful inclinations, your own ambitions, and come and follow me, then you can't. And he says, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand what it really means to follow me, what it means to be a non-idolater, verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it otherwise, when he has a foundation and not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to, began to build and was not able to finish it. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet one who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who cannot, does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple mean by that? He means you need to know the surpassing value of knowing him. 
It means that we must therefore say, none of this other than knowing Christ is my life. I yield all things, all that I am, to him. I look to him to tell me who I am. I look to him to tell me how I must live. I look to him to be my joy and delight. And you say, and I say, that's impossible. And he says, oh, not with me. It's daunting, isn't it? We don't even know what square one is when we listen to that. I don't. But yet I look and I play the game. What about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? How do I count that? How do I value that? How do I understand that? And everything I put in light of Christ, does it grip me? Or does Christ grip it? Jesus, of course, knows from whence he speaks. We sang our opening hymn this morning. Verse 2. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite. His grace humbled himself. Various ways to put the second line in that verse. Humbled himself, how great his love, and bled for Adam's. Helpless race. Jesus knows from whence he speaks. He, can I put it like this? That Jesus wasn't an idolater. <laughs> he loved his father. And he trusted him. And it was his father's plan for the son to come. And so he said, I yield to you. I will come. I won't cling even to my own glory. I won't cling to all that's mine, but I'll humble myself and I'll enter into this sinful race of people and I'll give myself for them. See? And in the same way, you see, we, we see that great love of God on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, he gave this too to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. So you see, when we're remembering Jesus, we're remembering the surpassing value of knowing him. Why? He's our life. There's no life without him. There's only death without him. See, this life comes because we're forgiven, reconciled to God. We become recipients of real life, and our eyes by the Holy Spirit are open so that, that we can see and value and say, oh, yes, this is a value. This isn't. We, we finally see it, you see. And then as we live life, it's a life Understanding our sin, but about understanding the grace of Christ and repenting and living. Every Sunday we have communion, I say the same thing, right? This is not a table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it 
all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. You know what that means? <laughs> you know what that, that invitation is? It's saying, I get it. I have nothing. I'm a sinner in the sight of God. I have no hope. I'm just like that rich young ruler. And without the sovereign mercy of God, Christ would say, come and follow me, and I would say no. But I, I get it. I have nothing. I'm a sinner in the sight of God. I have no hope except in the mercy of God. Well, the good news, the mercy of God comes in Christ. And so the second is, in all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus, as he's offered to us in the gospel, as the savior of sinners. So long as we look to our money, so long as we look to our heritage, so long do we look to anything that we've done to be our savior, that is to be the giver of life, then we have no place at this table. Coming to this table means that I renounce my trust in all of that. And I trust in Christ alone. As he's offered to me, in the gospel, the good news, that he is the giver of life. He is the savior of sinners. And then the last one is this. And all those who desire to live a life that's consistent with that profession, that you're a sinner in trust in Christ. And, and we think when we, when we live a life that's fitting or worthy of Christ, we think, that means I must be perfect. And the answer is No. It means Christ has been perfect and is, and I'm trusting in him. So when I come to this table, I'm, I'm renouncing my trust in everything else. I'm taking my oxen and my yokes, and I'm burning it all up. And I'm saying goodbye to this one and to that one and to this and to that, to this and to that, leaving them all behind. Whether it's my success or my prestige or my place or my whatever it is you see saying okay and I leave it behind and I say all right I'm counting now all that is lost and rubbish and all that for the sake of knowing Christ my life now that works as you're coming down and you take the bread and you and then you go you see and when you get back to your seat it's as if all that stuff greets you again and says hello <laughs> and then we say no that's called repentance. It's called repentance. And we do it again, don't we? Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday we get to come and do this again, right? And that braces us for the days to come. That is life. It's that life of repentance and grace, and repentance, and grace. I, I don't know, Elisha. I, I mean, I know him from the scripture some. We don't have a whole lot about him and his life and all of that. And, and, and I don't know that he ever looked back and said, I want to go back to mom and dad, and I want to go back and plow the fields. I don't know. My suspicion is that came up once or twice. But then there's repentance. That's not life. This is life.
Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That even as we see in our mind's eye, oxen being sacrificed and boiled and eaten and all of that, left behind. That our own hearts and mind, you would lay out for us all the things to which we cling, think brings us life. All the things which define us, but not with your definition. All the things that direct us, but not in your ways. All the things that we find great joy in, but yet they're not things that bring joy to your heart. Pray that you'd enable us to identify those, to see those, to leave them behind, and to come and follow you. We trust in you and you alone. So I pray now you take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus, that he's here. And that as we come, we're coming to him, through him, into the very throne of grace that we might receive life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall I say it again? Not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy, who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who desire henceforth to live in such a way that's worthy of Christ. That's true for you. All the stuff left behind. That's true for you. Please come, these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, ah, say, Christ is my life. Please come.